0: Here's Genesis chapter 33. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Sukkot and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkot. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar. And call it El Elohe Israel. This is the word of the Lord. You, God. Have a seat. <coughs> and before we look at this passage, let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the way in which you have um, gone before us. Uh, the ways in which, even in the midst of this. Worship service, we at every moment are responding to your goodness to us, that, that, that you have called us into your presence, that you have assured us of your forgiveness and made us confident uh, to confess our sins, moving us to repentance by your kindness. And then you have assured us yet again uh, with words of absolution. We thank you that we have acknowledged your generosity to us uh, and had the opportunity to sing your praises. Uh, and, and Father, now, as we hear your word, and um, we just marvel in these in these stories, um, and in the richness and and how the layers uh, of Jacob's character and the layers of uh, the other characters in the stories are are peeled back um, like the real people that they are, and we can see ourselves in them. Uh, and more than that, more importantly, we can see you. We can see your grace. We can see your goodness. We can see how you went before Jacob and be reminded that you also go before us. Um, Father, it is good that this day that you have set aside as holy comes at the beginning of the week. That it is the first thing that we do, uh, as though to remind us um, that our favor in your sight, that our being called as your people that all of the blessings that we enjoy from your hands, not a single one of them depends on anything that we do. It doesn't depend on the work that we will do throughout the week. You call us first uh, to rest uh, in you, and, and we have a hard time with that. Um, it cuts against the grain of um, how our world works, and, and we've absorbed a lot of that, and so it cuts against the, the grain of our own hearts um, that we want to offer you something uh, we, we, we want you to see the great work that we've done and accept us on on those grounds. And so please forgive us and please teach us how to rest. And, and even now as we sit under your word, would you bring rest into our hearts? Would you particularly bring rest to the restless? Would you bring comfort to those who are afflicted? Father, would you be near uh, to those who mourn and those who weep? Those who grieve uh, the loss of loved ones or the loss of time or the loss of dreams of how they thought life uh, would go. Father, would you be at work, even in the midst of trials, even in the midst of of suffering and hard things uh, for our good? Would you show us what a great God you are and how your power extends even uh, to the losses? Uh, and to things that we uh, suffer and, and things that we wish were otherwise. Father, we thank you um, that you have not left us alone, chiefly in sending your Son and, 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 and chiefly in sending your Spirit that our ascended Lord promised that he would send to be present with us whenever we were gathered in his name. But you have also not left us alone in gathering us together. Uh, to be one people. Father, would you teach us how to bear one another's burdens um, by every means that you've given us, by means of time, by means of uh, material um, support, by means of prayer, um, maybe mostly by means of prayer as we lift one another up to you. Father, we give you thanks. Thanks that your word teaches us to do all of these things, and we pray that it would do so more and more by the power of your spirit. And I pray, Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, Genesis 33 in some ways feels to me like the continuation from a cliffhanger. Um, we, uh, last week, as we got to Genesis 32, Jacob had left um, his uncle, Laban, um, had headed back towards the promised land, and he knew what was in front of him. He knew that in front of him was going to be an encounter with his brother who had every reason... Uh, to want him dead, and in fact had been threatening his life when he fled 20 years earlier. Um, Jacob was interrupted on his way to Esau, Um, and as we saw last week, that interruption uh, as God himself encountered him and God himself wrestled with him in the dark of night um, wasn't, in fact, a distraction uh, from the main event. That was the main event. As we said last week, what, what was, what's plain uh, in Genesis 32, this, this rich, rich chapter, is that the real struggle of Jacob's life wasn't the struggle with his family, it wasn't the struggle with his, his uncle um, or his brother, it was the struggle with God. It was the struggle to believe the promises of God and to believe that he had and has a father in heaven uh, who, will, who will care for him. It's a struggle to not live like an orphan, who has to make his own way in the world. Um, That's what happened uh, last week. And yet, when that's over, um, Esau is still there. Uh, Jacob is still making his way back uh, to his his brother. And in this chapter, uh, we get to see how it plays out. And, And one thing I think is clear, we said this last week, we'll say it again, was that that encounter with God had to happen first. That, that Jacob had to wrestle with God, uh, had to cling to him, had to <sighs> demand, had to hear that demand come out of his own mouth, say, I will not let you go until you bless me. I, I need to know that your promises to me are true. That had to happen before he could face his brother, and we'll, we'll see that, that play out here. There's kind of two parts uh, to this chapter. There's the reconciliation of these brothers, and then there's the parting of the ways. So let me just, let me just kind of summarize what happens here and draw out a few points. And then what I really want to focus on uh, for, for most of our time here, um, I want to return to this notion of, of, of seeking God's face, um, because I think very deliberately it comes back in this chapter when Jacob says to Esau, I have seen your face, and seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. I want to unpack that for us uh, here. So, the first thing we read is that Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. And everything in the language, everything in like even the way that that's written, you know, tells you that the narrator is not going to relieve the tension just yet, right? He looks up to the horizon and hears Esau with these 400, uh, and it specifically says 400 men, right? So Jacob is traveling with his wives and his children and his livestock. Esau's got a fighting force. He's got 400 men with him. And again, the question is this, is this hostile uh, or not? And so what does Jacob do? Well, he sends uh, the servants with their children first. Behind them, Leah and her children, um, and then, last of all, uh, Rachel uh, and Joseph. And, and you might pick up there, you know, that's, that's foreshadowing a little bit. Um, you remember Rachel was the favored wife? Uh, she is still the favored one. Rachel and Joseph are still enjoying Jacob's favor. And that's, if you know the Joseph story, we're not going to go into that. Um, but that favoritism that Jacob shows towards Rachel and towards her children, especially Joseph, um, that's going to cause some problems later on. So, it's not all smooth sailing for Jacob's family uh, for here on out. Um, now, one thing to notice, though, huge change from what was happening in, in chapter 32. Remember, in chapter 32, Jacob um, sent uh, his, his family, his wives, his children off in front of him. They crossed the river, and then it said he was alone, and that's when he had that encounter with God. So, everybody was off in front of Jacob. And Jacob was was holding back. This time, even though you know it goes it goes servants and then Leah and then Rachel, but Jacob is out in front. Um, so this is one just indication that he has been changed by this encounter. He is ready to face uh, his his brother. Um, the beautiful thing, the tension is relieved at verse four. Uh, it says Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, and fell on his neck and kissed him, uh, and, they, and they wept. And in the interchange that, that follows, Jacob is, um, in many ways, the picture of humility in a way that we haven't seen from him before, right? He's giving God all of the credit um, for uh, the grace, uh, God, uh, credit to God's grace for all that he has, the wives, children, livestock. Um, when asked, you know, what was, that, what, what was that gift that I met on the way? Um, he says this was to find favor in, in your eyes. He very delicately does not mention, uh, why he might need to find favor in Esau's uh, eyes. And Esau, just as delicately and politely also, like they don't, they don't mention that whole, yeah, cause you stole my birthright. Um, I have reason to be upset with you. They don't have to, they don't have to go into that. Um, but you can see, uh, that Esau does accept this gift, um, in, in, in accepting this gift, it's a way of him acknowledging, yes, you wronged me, and yes, I am accepting this apology, uh, and yes, I am satisfied, uh, and we're reconciled. There's nothing more between us. So there is this beautiful uh, scene of, of reconciliation. Um, we don't know why Esau is willing to reconcile, right? If, if you're wondering, like, what's happened the last 20 years? You know, why isn't he still... Out for blood. Uh, we just don't know. Uh, we don't know what has happened. Um, in fact, in some ways, the, the the narrator's silence is is important. The narrator, you know, wasn't slow to tell us that Laban was warned in a dream not to harm Jacob. Right? Um, we don't get anything like that here. We don't get any like specific, you know, Esau is warned not to, to harm Jacob. Um, and so, although we don't know what's going on. We can see this as a picture of just genuine reconciliation um, after, after 20 years apart. Um, the second scene is that they part ways, right? Esau encourages Jacob to come with him. Jacob makes this excuse. Um, well, it's not necessarily an excuse, it's true. Uh, he can't move uh, with his wives and his children and his livestock as fast as Esau can with this fighting force of, of 400 men. Um, it's not, again, another thing that's not entirely clear. Uh, why doesn't Jacob go with Esau? Because uh, in the end, you see that, that he, he doesn't. Uh, Esau goes to a city called Seir, which is in Edom, which means it's uh, to the um, east of the Jordan River and south, whereas Jacob ends up going west and crossing the Jordan, to a place called Sukkoth and then Shechem. A couple possibilities for for why um, that happens. Um, You know, one thing is that he could simply be determined to get back into the promised land, right? Like God did tell him, it's time to go back to the land that I promised I would bring you back to. Um, And if you notice, the end of this passage ends with him actually purchasing A piece of land. So by the end of chapter 33, Jacob actually owns a piece of the promised land for the first time. So that could be, that could be what's going on. Um, It could also be uh, that he just realizes that it's time, you know, he and Esau are reconciled and that's good, um, but they're not going to be able to live together. Uh, Their lives are too different. Um, Remember who they were growing up, right? Esau was the hunter out in the fields, um, hunting hunting game, Jacob was always with the flocks. Uh, in some ways, 20 years later, they're, they're staying true to form, right? Jacob has his family and his livestock. He's like a small village moving around. Um, Esau is there again with this, with this fighting force. And Jacob might simply be saying, like, our paths need to go in different directions. Um, it could be, It could be all of the above. One thing that I think that we can take from this, um, just as a, a, a minor point, um, just wrapping up kind of our, our summary of this passage, um, I think it is important for us to realize that reconciliation does not necessarily always mean doing life together from then on. You know, it, it, is, it, is, it is at times the case that things happen between people, um, whether it's conflict uh, whether it's you know, some kind of wrong that's done um, or whether it's just lives growing in, in different directions. Um, it is possible for you to repent, to forgive, to be forgiven, to reconcile, for, for, for reconciliation to be genuine without it necessarily mean, meaning that you and the other person have to go on doing life together. Um, it is at times okay. Uh, for lives to part ways. And for you to be able to say, yes, we're reconciled. I wish you nothing but the best. I can pray for you. I don't have anything against you. And for the other person to say that to you um, without the lives having to go together. I think we see that uh, here in this this passage. Okay, so let's talk about um, this notion then of seeking God's face. Um, this is something that came up last week, um, but just because of the richness of Genesis 32, I mean, there is so much packed into that chapter, right, as Jacob wrestles with, with God and has his name changed, um, these, these dramatic changes in his life, um, that I had to pass kind of quickly over the fact that, that Jacob sees God face-to-face and how significant that is, um, how significant it is it is to him. Um, but this has made a huge change in Jacob's life, right? From a man who is trembling with fear uh, at the beginning of chapter 32 to one who is now confidently able to go ahead of everybody else uh, and face his brother. Um, what he says here in, in verse 10... I think is intentionally reminding us of the significance of seeing God's face. Verse 10, he says, I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Um, There's a sense in which you can say that for Jacob, um, there's sort of this analogical, there's, there's an analogy to be drawn between seeing Esau's face Uh, and seeing God's face. Um, In both cases, um, there is a reckoning that has to take place. There is the potential for judgment. Um, Jacob knows that he deserves judgment, and he has every reason to expect that if judgment is coming, it's going to come in the form uh, of his brother, right? Um, but there's also reconciliation in both cases, both seeing Esau's face and seeing God's. There is a reconciliation uh, that, that takes place. I don't know if you noticed the, uh, the language of, of verse 4. I don't know if this jumped out at you, the, the depiction of the reconciliation that takes place between Esau and Jacob. Uh, it says Esau ran to meet him, embraced him, and fell on his neck. Um, There's another place in the Bible where those words are used to describe a scene of reconciliation. You know what that is? It's in the parable of the prodigal son. That's the description of the father, right? The father runs out uh, to meet his son as he comes back and embraces him. And it says he fell on his neck. Um, You almost wonder. Uh, if Jesus didn't have this scene in mind when he crafted that story uh, in that that way. Now, like any analogy, um, the analogy has to break down at some point. Um, Seeing Esau's face and seeing God's face are like each other, but they're also very unlike each other. Um, I find it helpful when thinking about analogies in, in the Bible, especially analogies between anything human and anything pertaining to God, you know, anything, anything where the analogy is between the creature and the creator. Uh, to remember something that, that the church wrote, um, this is from something called the Fourth Lateran Council, it's the 13th century, um, but this is beautiful. Here, here's what they wrote. They said, one cannot note any similarity between creator and creature, however great, Without being compelled to observe an ever greater dissimilarity between them. What, what that means is that anytime we see something that is similar between God and one of his creatures, um, between God and um, a man or woman made in the image of God, as soon as you see the similarity, immediately you're driven to realize, oh, but the dissimilarity is so much greater uh, because God is so unlike anything in creation. He is holy. He is transcendent. Um, Coming face to face with God involves a reckoning like with Esau and reconciliation, and yet it is so much more significant, so much more weighty, uh, so much more potentially lethal. But at the same time, the Bible talks about seeing God's face. Coming face to face with him as being nothing less than what you and I are most made for. It's like it's, it's, it's our purpose. Like if you wanted to find biblical language to go along uh, with our catechism, right, that says that our end is to uh, glorify God and enjoy him forever, seeking his face, seeing his face, seeing him face to face is kind of the biblical language for that. Last week I mentioned Psalm 27. Um, that talks about seeking God's face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek? Um, that's just one passage, right? I didn't have time to go into the others, but, but let me just give you a few. Remember Job, right? We preached through Job um, about a year ago. Um, Job 19, Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall, see, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. And then there's several New Testament passages. John talks about this. Um, 1 John 3.2 says, Beloved, we are God's children, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And then 1 Corinthians 13, you probably know this one. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. You guys, even the the process whereby we become more like Christ um, is described in the New Testament as being a matter of seeing his face. 2 Corinthians 3, 18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So this language of seeing God's face and seeking His face is, is everywhere, and it is significant uh, in the Scriptures. Um, I think that's tapping into something that is really central to being human, um, We are wired to seek faces, right? You you probably know like an infant. The very first thing that an infant uh, is gonna focus on when when they can only focus on like six inches away from their nose, right, is is the face of their mother and they will follow faces. Um, We are wired to see faces where there are no faces, right? Electrical outlets look like a face. The front of a car can look like a face. You know, a rock formation uh, can look like a face and become the, the emblem of, of New Hampshire until it sadly collapses, um, which, was, which was tragic. Um, we are wired uh, to see faces, and, 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 and we know from very recent experience um, how hard it can be when we don't see anybody's face for a long, long time, right? Um, we know how hard that is. Um, To be face-to-face with someone means intimacy. It means nearness. It means knowing and being known. And I think this is is central to why it's so important, this, this idea of seeing God's face, that we have this deep yearning, longing need to know and to be known by God. Um, Jesus, in the gospel we've been preaching through in the, in the spring, remember in, in, in the gospel of John, says to know God, this is eternal life. And we long to know him deeply. We long to know him face to face. But there's this problem, right? And this was, this was the problem that Jacob was facing. Um, that to see God face to face, as much as we long for that, Um, it can also be a fearful thing, because this God is holy, and we're not. And as much as Scripture talks about how much we are made to see His face, it also says nobody sees God's face and lives to tell about it. And Jacob was marveling at the end of 32, why am I still here? Um, The quote that I put on the front of the bulletin this week comes from this devotional uh, that Bradley and I have, have both been reading, um, Advent readings from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, and if you're in one of the small groups, you saw this this week too, that it, the, the Wednesday reading, it grabbed us. Um, Bonhoeffer uh, said this, I'll read a little bit more than, than is on the front. Um, Bonhoeffer said, the coming of God, what we celebrate at Advent, the coming of God is truly not only a joyous message, but is first frightful news for anyone who has a conscience, and only when we have felt the frightfulness of the matter can we know the incomparable favor. God comes in the midst of evil, in the midst of death, and judges the evil in us and in the world. And in judging it, he loves us. He purifies us. He sanctifies us. He comes to us with his grace and love. He makes us happy as only children can be happy. We've become so accustomed to the idea of divine love and of God's coming at Christmas that we no longer feel the shiver of fear that God's coming should arouse in us. We're indifferent to the message, taking only the pleasant and agreeable out of it and forgetting the serious aspect that the God of the world draws near to the people of our little earth and lays claim to us. Here's the problem. We desperately long to see the face of God. What we desperately fear to see the face of God. We desperately long to know and to be fully known. We also desperately fear being fully known. How does this get resolved? How did it get resolved with Jacob? Here's what I think is significant in, in Jacob's story that I think gives us a hint to how this how this gets resolved. Before his encounter with God, Jacob's only hope is this gift that he's sending out in front of him. Or Verse, verse 20 of chapter 32 was the one that repeated the word face several times. Um, I'm going to send out this gift that I might appease Esau's face because I'm going to see his face and then maybe he'll accept my face. Uh, our English translations only pick up on, on one of those, but it's there three times in verse 20. Um, Jacob is desperately hoping that what he has to offer to Esau will be enough. But after his encounter with God, after he has come face to face with his creator, he has the confidence to go out in front and to meet Jacob, er, to meet Esau face-to-face. When we fail to understand the gospel, the only hope that we can think of to come into God's presence is to offer Him something. Some gift, some work, something and say, please accept me on the basis of this. But when we understand the gospel that says none of that is going to suffice because we're much more sinful than we've ever dared imagined. And yet none of that is necessary because in Christ we're more loved than we've ever dared hope. Then, we have the confidence to come into God's presence. Um, there, There is a reason, and Bradley pointed it out today, there is a reason that our worship service goes the way that it does. We confess sin, and we receive God's forgiveness all in one moment, and we do that before there's the offering in order to emphasize that that offering has nothing to do with winning God's favor that the favor that we have with God has already been won for us, not by what we do and by what we bring, by what Jesus has done, by what he has brought. Um, You know, this is the thing that Jacob didn't know, right? Jacob at the end of 32 is marveling, why am I still alive? On what basis was I not destroyed by coming face to face with God? And he wouldn't really have known how to answer that question. But we have gotten to see a lot more than him. And have gotten to understand how this was possible. Let me read to you this passage from Hebrews 10. We'll close with this. Hebrews 10, 19 to 25 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the the day drawing near. The last point I want to make here is how understanding that Jesus' blood shed for us is how it is possible. For us to enter into god's presence that, that is the way like that is that is how it, we are able to enter with confidence doesn't leave us by ourselves in god's presence the writer of hebrews immediately sends us to one another immediately sends us the implication of that truth the the implication of this marvelous gospel that we are accepted that we can stand in God's presence, is that we should then turn to one another and encourage one another. Stir each other up to good works and not neglect to meet together. But to encourage one another all the more as we see the day drawing near, that day uh, that we are longing for in this Advent season. So it is good that we're here. Um, And it's good that the first thing that we get to do after sitting under God's word, is to come and to share this meal together. That our first act of repentance is something that we do together. Let's pray.